I'm so sick of getting nowhere in my personal therapy. Maybe my parents were wrong and drugs really are the answer. You're listening to the Dream App Podcast. My name is Jesse Lyon, Chief Dream Scientist at Dream App. And today I'm joined by TJ Power. He's a huge mental health voice on the internet with over 76,000 followers on Instagram. He's a neuroscientist and the co-founder of Neurofy.io, which is an app that helps you take neurochemistry into your own hands so you can adjust those chemicals in your brain that are causing all those pesky negative feelings. I'm so glad you're here. Well, listen, I'm joined here today by TJ Power. He's the co-founder of Neurofy.io, and he works very heavily on social media in the mental health and psychology space. And for me, I'm the most excited to have you on because we're talking about those chemicals inside of our brain. Me personally, I work on kind of the emotional side, the dream side, um, but the chemicals and working with like psychiatrists and psychologists is something... I personally would like to learn more about. Uh, and to be honest, sometimes I can feel like I'm powerless against the chemicals that are inside of my head. And so I'm very interested to learn here with TJ today how we can kind of do some of that stuff. So TJ, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, man. Super, uh, super excited to be in this conversation. And I can tell you that you do have power over these chemicals for sure. These chemicals are just a guiding thing, trying to align our behavior and yeah, I think it's going to be cool to dive deep into how they work and, and how you get them optimized. Yeah, that's what I'm, I'm super curious about. Super curious. So you've got a, you've got a history, though, um, you know, working, working in this space. And you've been speaking quite a bit, you know, doing my research before we started kind of making this podcast. Um, you got into presenting pretty early on in your psychology career. Am I, am I right with that? Yeah, so I, I was doing my psychology masters i was mastering in the uh focused on the neuroscience space and i wanted to start teaching i created like a third year psychology module when i was at uni and they gave me a shot and, and let me start lecturing and that was kind of my first step into into sharing these ideas with people and i loved it and yeah just been pumping it for the last three years since then I love it, man. I love it. What kind of got you into that space? I don't know if this is true of uh, psychologists and neuroscientists, but every counselor has some kind of story <laughs> about why they became a counselor. Uh, is there is there an origin story for your, you know, flavor of superhero? <laughs> yeah, I would I would say definitely as you go back, you can kind of connect the dots and see what kind of created the path and. Early on, when I was super young, kind of between the ages of about five and nine years old, I developed some OCD, like some proper OCD, had a bit of treatment for OCD. I just had a young mind that was like fearful and had some compulsions. And my mum approached that in a really good way. I had some like brain training outside of school, which I didn't know was necessarily something that was out the norm. And I kind of got some good guidance on it as like a, a young kid. Um, but that opened my mind up to the idea of kind of feeling a bit anxious, a bit overwhelmed. And then part of the solution to the OCD was I got really, really into golf and set my sights on like professional golfer. And if you have ever interacted with a game of golf, it's quite a mind-based sport. It's like pretty stressful in your head playing golf and started interacting with psychologists. I got like to a decent standard in golf and that kind of set my interest in, wow, psychology is, is super, super cool. And then chose to study it at college and then yeah, pursued it from there. Wow, that's incredible. 
You know, I, I don't know if this is your personal experience, but a lot of the clients that I work with in my practice tell me that OCD is one of those that really feels kind of out of hand. It feels um, not like it's out of control, uh, like you can't deal with it, but it's like it's one of those where you can really experience some of that powerlessness feeling of nothing I do actually has an effect. Nothing I do actually changes my symptoms. Was that your kind of experience as well? Yeah, it was cheeky. I, I definitely agree with the powerless experience of OCD. And whilst yeah. I, I had such good guidance as a kid as to how to navigate it, I can still, my mind is evidently prone to that experience of like getting like slightly obsessed and developing an, a, a compulsion. To give you some context, it was very simple stuff when I was a kid, like waking up in the night and you know how scary it is to go like downstairs in your house in the night when you're a kid because it's dark and stuff. And I would tell myself, yeah. oh, if I don't, go out to the garage, turn the light on and off a number of times, then this bad event will happen. And I developed this like compulsive, if I don't do this behavior, this is the outcome. And it is a powerless feeling because if, if you ever kind of conform to the compulsion, you begin to then reinforce in your brain that doing the behavior isn't meaning that the outcome you fear isn't happening. And it does create some difficulty, but I definitely believe it's something that can be can be taught and guided away from. Like I think the more you understand it, the more you practice with someone that can give you good guidance, the more you can begin to regain your power over those kind of compulsive thoughts. Yeah, yeah. Mm, so really, really kind of practice and working through those things. It's manageable, but you have to be kind of diligent about it, huh? For sure. OCD is a really tricky thing and it's definitely growing yeah. in our modern world, I think the world can be kind of like crazy these days. And if you have a mind that seeks for control and order, you can kind of like over exacerbate that part of you. That's quite a useful component of the human brain that can kind of go on overdrive and then you can try and get too ordered and structured. So I think it's a, it's a normal thing to be happening now and a good area to, to research and support. Yeah, absolutely. And that's kind of one of the questions I wanted to ask just to get your opinion is how do you make sense or how do you balance that idea between the emotional side where we have to work on our emotions and have some changes in our behavior and then the chemical side? Because they do kind of relate one to another and they influence each other. Um, like maybe just take your personal story for, for a minute. How do you relate the emotional side to the chemical side? Is this OCD more of a chemical problem or more of an emotional problem? That is a good question. That is a good question. So from a, from a chemical perspective, there are these four, just for a bit of background, four that I'm very focused on, which is dopamine, super famous in the modern world. That's the one yep. that's creating all of our pursuit and drive and ability to basically hunt in our life. Oxytocin, the human bonder. And then you've got serotonin, really connected to your whole nervous system. It's both in your body and in your brain. That really affects our ability to calm our emotional state. And then you have endorphins, mm really connected to stress and physical health and stuff like that. And with your question here, it's like, is it the chemical or is it the, the emotion? And with my personal story, the, the thing is, is the chemical is just like an underlying biological function in the body that's taking place during an emotion. So if someone is experiencing some kind of emotional discomfort, the serotonin system will be very much involved in that situation. So I definitely don't think it's one or the other. I just think that the emotion is what we're experiencing. The chemical is something that's underlying that's happening. And if I had had these insights when I was younger, I would have maybe just known that during these periods where I'm more emotionally like vulnerable or more stressed out or feeling more anxious, some of the serotonin supporting based behaviors could have been great for just knowing how to calm the system a bit. So mm. I kind of see them as interconnected. 
Yeah, well, and, and those four that you just mentioned are a huge part of everything you do with Neurofy. It makes up the acronym DOSE, which is your, uh, your mobile learning yeah, platform, exactly. which is really cool, which is really cool. I love that. <laughs> is, I was um, a happy man when I was on a walk. A, uh, I was on a walk maybe last February, and I suddenly just realized it spelled DOSE down the side, and I was like, had that magical moment of like, yes, like, this is just all coming together. Um, so yeah, it's a nice, easy way to remember. Yeah, it's a perfect it's a perfect uh, acronym for it. Dose, get your dose of happiness, you know. <laughs> <laughs> With um, so you know the serotonin and, and those chemicals that are kind of running around in your brain. How much, based on like our activities and the things that we do, can we actually influence those? Because I know sometimes I wake up in the morning and I just feel terrible. Like you know, I'm like mm -hmm. I I can tell that my brain is off. I can tell that my chemicals are misaligned, but I don't think I did anything wrong. I tried to get sleep, you know. I tried to drink more water, and so, like, how much are we actually able to influence those? Because I know sometimes, like myself and some of my clients, can get really frustrated because uh, it feels like nothing we do helps. Yeah. Okay. It's a it's a cool question. So, definitely very easy to influence and they they're very fast in their process in which they respond like mm. for example a classic behavior that is very good for the dopamine and just for some context about dopamine again dopamine its actual function biologically within us is to create all the pursuit to do the behaviors that help a human survive so if you mm -hmm. took it back to hunter gatherers they had to hunt, they had to forage for food, they had to build shelter, they had to explore new territories, all these things, lots of effort, dopamine comes in, makes them pursue them, and then it rewards them afterwards and so that they continue to do it. And if you say, take a, a modern day behavior that would be a classic thing that could have a quick influence on your dopamine, if you've ever mm. been in your home and you've thought, right, I really need to clean my home, I need to clean my bedroom, I need to do the dishes in the kitchen, whatever it may be. All the be. time. And it's one of those activities, pretty easy to procrastinate and put off. And then eventually you put some music on and you get it done. During it, you start thinking, oh, I'm kind of happy I'm doing this. It feels good that I'm getting this done. And afterwards, you have that real feeling of satisfaction and reward. And all that's happened there is dopamine has come up and it can come up that quickly. Similarly, like with an alternative behavior, something like physical touch, massive for oxytocin, literally in the moment of physically connecting with a person, oxytocin's going up. Yeah. So if you understand the chemicals and you kind of begin to understand what it feels like to be low in each one so rather than just i feel like shit right now it could be i'm really lacking drive or i'm really feeling disconnected from people or my mood and emotions are really heightened then you can kind of give a bit yourself a bit of clarity as to what kind of behavior now could help me with this situation okay okay so you're saying they're pretty easy to influence you just have to it almost sounds like you just have to do a little bit of a better job identifying instead of just i feel like shit it's like okay let's be a little bit more specific about what flavor of shit you feel like today <laughs> yeah, is it low motivation that, that is yeah it. is it starved for touch like what what kind of shitty do you feel and that will help you kind of mm -hmm. understand what steps you need to take to correct that am i understanding right Definitely, definitely. And for, for each of these chemicals, there are fundamental behaviors that are causing them to go particularly low in our modern world. So if you go back to a hunter-gatherer, they would instinctively, their dose was just always optimized effectively. They were always in the pursuit mm. of survival, working super hard. They were always connecting with people because if you weren't in a group, you are gone in the jungle. They were always 
doing the things that affect serotonin, which can be healthy nutrition, calm breathing, being in, out in natural sunlight, sleeping a lot. So a hunter-gatherer, they were just optimized. And th these chemicals were evolving throughout that period, and that's why they were optimized. Whereas now, if we take, say, the dopamine one, for example, there are a lot of behaviors that rather than slowly achieving the reward of dopamine, so tidying your room is a very basic and simple example, but it does give reward. A lot of the modern day behaviors spike the dopamine super fast, so you don't earn it, and anything that goes up really quickly causes, cra causes crashes and fluctuations and stuff. And things like, especially in our line of work, the wonderful world of TikTok is a classic thing. You go on yes. it and it's like, bang, dopamine is hitting your brain. And that's where you can feel pretty lethargic and demotivated afterwards because you've messed up the dopamine system. Or you have mm. things like booze and stuff like that. These things are creating particular difficulties with the chemicals. Interesting. What is it? I mean, maybe those are similar or maybe we need to treat them as different topics, but like TikTok <laughs> and booze, that's a great that's a yeah. great topic to talk about because they do really kind of like sabotage our natural way of producing and handling dopamine. So like, mm -hmm. is that process similar? And what is it really doing to our brains that causes that dopamine crash? Because we all know it, like it feels terrible, you know, mm -hmm. uh, that that day after the hangover and after you've been scrolling on TikTok for an hour, you just feel that crash, no motivation, terrible about yourself. Are they similar? And why is that? hundred percent from a from a brain perspective as to what's happening in the brain very very similar and okay as i say the, the difficulty is the faster pleasure hits your brain the more kind of difficulty it's going to create for your mind and even if you took mm. then it up a notch and you compared alcohol to cocaine for example cocaine is going to take you even higher than the alcohol is going to take you so it's going to take you lower and with these things the, there's like two components to it. One is the fact that dopamine is creating big fluctuations. So do, if, if every day you're waking up, let's say you're doing two hours of TikTok a day, your brain in the experience of watching that is producing loads and loads of dopamine. It's like, wow, this is so fun. This is so entertaining. And there's also the whole component of there's loads of hot girls on there, which is a big thing, like, because that really taps into survival and that really spikes the dopamine as I'm sure lots of guys and girls get super into watching these things. And mm. so dopamine is constantly traps. spiking up. Super <laughs> They're, they are thirst traps and like they're ridiculously sexy and it's hard to not look at. So like, it's not surprising we do. Um, and what our brain, there's two kind of ways in which our brain responds to this. One mm. is if it's always fluctuating too much, high, low, high, low, high, low, the brain is thinking I can't cope with this. So one component is it actually starts producing less dopamine so that you actually can't get as high anymore so that it can cope with the fluctuations. So rather than big ups, big downs, it will make the up and down smaller because it's easier to manage. The way it achieves that is by just reducing the amount it creates. And that is what creates a low dopamine state in a person where literally their brain stops producing as much dopamine. And when you're in a low Whoa. dopamine state, when you look at all the science, a low dopamine person is gonna feel more anxious and nervous. They're gonna procrastinate a lot because they don't have much will in them to do things. If you get super low, depression biologically is low dopamine. And when you are depressed, it becomes very difficult to work and have showers and exercise and cook and all these things that require effort in our life. So it's basically big fluctuations cause less to be produced. And then your ability to pursue your life and make it good becomes more difficult. And then you feel pretty shit as a result. Wow. That's, uh, it sounds like you just read the story of my life to me. It's like, uh, <laughs> low motivation, <laughs> no, like, feeling I'm that crash. 
Yeah, yeah. How how long does that crash last? Like, you know, if you, like, let's say I took a social media cleanse, right? You know, no more thirst traps yeah. on TikTok. <laughs> I take a break from the internet. How long does it take for my brain, my body to get back to the regular sort of dopamine cycle instead of that low, you know, kind of dose, the low fluctuations that happen from overdoing dopamine? Yeah, that's that's cool. So the great thing about the human brain is it is so like its ability to recover is so amazing like we see how it's it can recover from injury or whatever in trauma da, da, da. so it, it can recover from things <laughs> or you're binge drinking trauma. on the weekend <laughs> it recovers <laughs> or, or the binge drinking on the weekend so if you have a period of time where you don't kind of take in any of this quick dopamine during that period of time even this is just like in the first day of doing it, during that time of not taking in dopamine, your brain is immediately going to start thinking, okay, none of that quick crap is around. I'll start re restoring this system. And then it just becomes a, a practice of frequency and dosage of these short, quick forms of dopamine, effectively. Because I'm mm. not naive to this situation. I'm not thinking, right, everyone, let's quit TikTok, let's quit drinking, and let's all just be monks in Tibet. As great as that may be for our brain, it's just not what humans are going to do. So I don't think just, so quantity of consumption of these things is so important to measure and with tiktok for example i always say i train lots of companies and schools on this topic i always say with tiktok absolute max scroll would be 20 minutes you wouldn't want to surpass 20 minutes of solid scrolling and wow, then you okay. want to do something else and that's not in the whole day that's just as in without stopping because once you surpass that 20 minute period your dopamine is going to have been so high producing so much effectively getting so exhausted from pumping out the dopamine when you come off it's just going to crash really hard so 20 mm. minutes of tiktok and maybe if you have three of those a day like your brain could probably manage that kind of quantity but when you're having three one hour hits of tiktok it's going to be that sounds more likely <laughs> yeah that sounds more likely and it's important to recognize it doesn't even necessarily mean you got to get off the phone because the phone isn't all bad like it's not all bad quick dopamine like even the difference between scrolling tiktok compared to going onto YouTube and sitting and watching this podcast, for example. If someone was sitting and watching this podcast or listening to this podcast, this is something that is requiring effort, they're having to concentrate, they're having to engage in the conversation, and therefore dopamine is actually climbing because it's something that's not providing them with quick pleasure. So it's about just understanding how much of my mm. time, say, for example, on the phone is spent just quick, quick, quick pleasure, and how much of it is like a little bit more effort, so a little bit longer form content on YouTube or reading some sliders that take a bit of effort on Instagram or whatever it may be. Twitter could be a little bit better if it's interesting stuff you're engaging with. So it's just finding that balance. Yeah, finding that balance, almost like if you can push that reward out a little bit further and create a little bit of tension, a little bit of struggle to achieve that reward, you're actually going to have a much healthier dopamine cycle rather than, I mean, gosh, what's the average length of a TikTok video? Six, 15 seconds? That's so yeah, for fast. Sure. For sure. It, it literally is that, just pushing the reward back slightly. And like if you compare, say, for example, the, the feeling you experience after you successfully hook up with someone and sleep with someone, which is something that probably took quite a lot of effort to achieve, like you had to meet them, get them to be interested in you, share good conversation, then get intimate with them and then sleep with them. It's a long you had journey. to shower. It's, like, it's a whole thing. You had to shower. You had to be a human <laughs> that can function in that area. All these things. These are things that require effort. If you compare how you feel lying in bed after you hook up with someone to how you feel lying in bed after watching porn, 
they are drastically different experiences in our brain. One of them mm. makes us feel kind of like shit and one of them makes us think, yes, accomplishment and success. So these are, the, these are just the balance to have in your head. How much of your life are things that are effort that you're in pursuit of and how much are things that are just immediate quick pleasure to your brain? And the more effort you put in, effectively, the better these things function. Interesting, interesting. So, okay, follow-up question. You know, I have a lot of my followers and a lot of the people in, in my community tell me about... Um, what you're talking about, but they tell me about something, something else that's a little bit different. They say um, they're they'll be really good at working very hard. They'll work very <laughs> hard for long-term goals, and they're always kind of like workaholics, almost. You know, they're always really pressing towards their goals and doing stuff. But then when they take a break, they feel awful. The guilt sets in. The shame sets mm. in. They feel unproductive. They feel kind of like a like a waste of space. Like they're useless. Is that related to this dopamine cycle or is that enter in another one of these dose chemicals that you're talking about? Yeah, I love that question because this is one of the difficulties, especially in our world that's very like capitalism based, success, 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 which has its go, go, cons, go. I'm sure I'm sure you feel. Um, that experience is something I've really personally navigated as well because I often feel my best mentally when I am making good progress in my career and business and socials and all of these different things. And the experience of rest can make you, you feel lazy. And I think it really is how you relate to that conversation in your head about the rest you're having. Like it's really important, the dialogue that you experience during the rest effectively. And when you say, does it come into another chemical? This one really comes into the oxytocin component and mm. Bit of bit of simple ideas on oxytocin, most prominently released in in the human experience when your mum gives birth to you. So in that moment, oxytocin surges in you and your mum, creates this maternal bond and creates the desire to connect with people. And then as we go through life, any moments in which we create connection and love with people, oxytocin builds. And also, and how this relates here, is any time you create connection and love with yourself oxytocin builds and this conversation this kind of how you communicate with yourself how critical and hard you are on yourself really connects in here and the important thing to understand is that when you're kind of interacting with yourself around this rest conversation is firstly fundamentally understanding that rest is a key ingredient of optimal performance you don't like if you look at athletes for example Athletes are like the epitome of optimum performance. All they do is try and optimize performance. And rest yeah. is like a fundamental part. Time off, lots of sleep, lots of time not doing their sport, all of these kind of things. So understanding that rest will only lead to more output is really key at first. And then the other component is during the rest and something that is great to work on in general with, with yourself as a person is getting better at celebrating how much you have accomplished rather than constantly thinking about all the things that you haven't yet accomplished. Because we have this thirst mm. for just, I have to achieve more, I have to achieve more. Very rarely do we reflect and think, it's awesome how much effort I've put into my job recently or how much effort I've put into my health or whatever it may be. And during those restful downtime periods, if you can talk to yourself and think, these are all the great things I've been doing and this is why I deserve this rest, it can make it a more enjoyable experience and then you actually get more out of the rest because you're in like a more present, chilled headspace about the fact you're doing it. Yeah. Wow. When, when you said that oxytocin, the most predominant time that it's released, uh, is during, during childbirth between that pair bonding with mother and child, that... Mm -hmm. That was insightful because then the things that you said afterwards almost sounded like 
very maternal type of emotional relationships with yourself, right? So like a mother mm, will congratulate sure. their child and say, way, way to go, you know, you you know, you know, colored this picture, I'm gonna stick it on the fridge, you know, I'm really proud of you, or way to go, you know, you, you did great in that soccer game, ah, oh, don't worry about whether you win or lost, you know, I'm really proud of you. And so all of these moments of really congratulating, taking time to rest, you know, cause moms will do that, be like, it's time to go to bed, you know, get ready for bed, wind down, it's a very maternal kind of conversation. I, I don't think I fully realized that this is something that we can also release in our relationships with ourselves, oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And so it almost it almost sounds like the way I'm making sense of what you said is if we can have a better maternal relationship with ourselves, maybe there's a way to start to heal that oxytocin deficiency that we have that creates kind of that guilt and that shame related to taking a break. Am I understanding? Yeah, unbelievably, yeah, well articulated. And that's a hundred percent the reality. And if if you think of wow. a situation, say for example, someone has been working super hard and you feel pretty burnt out, for example. If you were yeah. to call your mom and you said to her, Mom, I'm like feeling this way, I'm feeling exhausted and I'm really like nervous in my head and da 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 your mom would like so instinctively just help you figure out how the hell are you going to recharge your system? How are you going to get rest? And mom's like, if you've got a good relationship with your mom, they would be great at giving you that guidance, similar to how they're great at celebrating you as well. And that maternal yeah. relationship with yourself is something that I think people really struggle with. I think people really struggle to fundamentally like be kind to themselves in their head. And I think some people, especially the high performers that may be slightly like uh, more susceptible to this experience of struggling with the experience of rest. I think these high performances, high performers think that if you celebrate yourself and you don't constantly, I need to work hard, I need to work hard. If you celebrate yourself, you'll achieve less because you'll get kind of complacent with the experience of I'm doing well, so I'm okay. And I really just think that's not the case. I think the more you celebrate the accomplishments you're making, the more through that operant conditioning, Pavlov's dogs thing, the more you condition yourself to actually just keep achieving and keep doing the things that you're doing that are leading to the success. So I think it's like a different take on it. Understanding that idea of celebrating yourself is vital. Yeah, wow. And I mean, there's a whole nother conversation we could launch into, which is the question of if oxytocin is one of those chemicals that's really created between that bond with your mother, you know, how much is that sabotaged by, you know, a patriarchal culture, a culture that really Mm -hmm. kind of idolizes and promotes men, you know, is there some sabotage there between the natural production of oxytocin just because of like how much success and achievement and, you know, hustle culture that we really press into, um, which can be more on the masculine side, but that's, that gets into politics. But interesting thing that you're making me think about definitely connected and it is a challenge like we do live in the patriarchal success oriented world and whilst that means humans continue to grow and advance at a ridiculously fast rate as we're observing that more feminine energy that's in our world that wants love and kindness and connection with groups and all of these different things and connection with yourself these are just things that a human fundamentally requires we need it and you think is you think growing up in a hunter gatherer tribe you would have had just so much female energy especially in your younger years so much female energy around you just teaching yourself love, teaching one another love effectively and then now it is this political concept but it's like 
even women thinking I have to be back in work, back to work within six months of having this kid because I've got to get back on the hustle and get back on the grind. It's reducing the quantity of time that young kids have around their mums, developing all of this oxytocin and connection and love. So it oh is a God. real difficulty, the way in which we're constructing our modern world. Wow. Blow my mind here, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good topics, man. Yeah, pressing pressing people to kind of go back to work like after you know after birthing a child can really kind of sabotage that natural build of oxytocin. I don't know if there's any research studies on this. Maybe you know, but um, is there a correlation effect between the amount of time that a mother spends with her newborn child uh, and the levels of oxytocin that that person that child might experience the rest of their life? I'm curious. I don't know if you know of anything, but that's an yeah, interesting topic. 100%. This is a topic I'm fascinated by and it's an area like I, i'm not yet in the world of having kids but it's something that i'm super excited about i'm 25 now I, i'd imagine 30 years old like i'll be super excited about the idea of pursuing a family and things like that and given yeah. my just deep interest in the human experience creating children is like one of the biggest desires for me if not number one and uh i That's have been cool, doing man. a lot of research into quantity of of like connection, physical touch, love, attention that is experienced. And there's a big concept within the world of uh, more kind of traditional birthing, going back a little bit into how humans originally had kids. Mm. And there's this concept of the fourth trimester, which is obviously you have the first, first three trimesters, the baby gets born, and then typically that baby is just in the world and it's going out and it's meeting people and it's, in a, like, it's getting carried around busy towns and cars and all this sort of stuff. This yep. idea of the fourth trimester that's getting super popular is that in the three months after birth, it's like just the mum and the baby a lot of the time. Of course, the dad is there a lot as well. And it's like a really deep, intimate connection bonding experience after they're born. And they are showing real relationships between quantity of oxytocin experienced early on in that real initial period and then the body's capacity to produce it as you age. And like it's just logical it makes sense. If you've got a ton of love around you early on, there's going to be a lot of love in you to give out as well. And if there's not that much and you're kind of like really like in the mix of our crazy world, it's just not going to develop as, as efficiently. Yeah, absolutely. Whoa, that's that's crazy interesting. And and for anyone listening, you know, I'll just say like I've seen a lot of, you know, because I'm I'm a counselor in my you know other job. Um, it's kind of like my daytime thing. But I've seen a lot of really wonderful success with people who did not have a very loving or a very nurturing childhood experience. Um, I just don't want anyone listening to this podcast to think that just because you didn't have a nurturing or loving childhood experience, that means you're doomed. Your oxytocin is going to be thrown off forever. But what it does mean is I think by recognizing that maybe we had some adverse childhood experiences, that means you need to take extra time to congratulate yourself on your accomplishments. Take a little bit of extra time to rest, to sleep, and to really care for yourself the way that maybe you did miss out on when you were growing up and when you didn't have that fourth trimester like you're talking about. Uh, I yeah. just think that's important. I think that's an important thing to mention. And I mean, for me personally, I 100% didn't have a fourth trimester. And uh, <laughs> my, my mom and dad were deep in the entrepreneurship game when, when me and my siblings came into the world. So we definitely okay, experienced okay. like a little, bit, a little bit different. They were very, they were super busy. And the important thing to understand is, yes, this might be, optimum looking at this but a lot of people have disconnected relationships from their parents when they're young and stuff like that and maybe a little bit less oxytocin when they're young but we as a humans 
we as humans are just fundamentally designed to, to give and receive love. It's like right at the core of what we are as a species because that's what leads to the group surviving. And even if you didn't have much as a young person, you have the capacity to literally create it in yourself and create it in those around you. So if you do think, wow, I didn't actually have like too deep a like loving connection and bonds when I'm young. It's just an idea in your head to trigger, could I create more in my life now with those that are around me? So can I create more moments to physically connect with my friends? Can I celebrate my friends more? Can I be more grateful for my friends and my family? And just actively think, how can I surge this oxytocin stuff up now instead? Yeah, that's going to be really important for you. Really important for you. Well, and so, so you know, I'm just thinking about like like dreams and archetypes and stuff, right? One of the things that I think yes, people misunderstand. So a bit into it. Yeah, well, it, it connects directly with what we're talking about. You know, um, one of the things that I think people misunderstand about their dreams and their symbols is we'll talk about maternal symbols and feminine symbols. Right. Mm-hmm. So like the bear is a is a maternal feminine symbol. The wolf is a maternal feminine symbol. In both of those, you know, you've got like mama bear, papa bear. We use that in our language. So there's maternal mm-hmm. family connections in that symbol. And then wolf pack, you know, or the lone wolf. It has everything to do with our connection with others and connection with the group, which is also a very feminine maternal thought. But what a lot of people get misunderstood about those feminine and maternal symbols is that they're well, they can be dangerous and powerful. A lot of people think, oh, like a snuggly bear, like, oh, cuddly cat or whatever. Well, there's the flip side of that. And in order to have a fully balanced, like feminine or maternal symbol, like that concept, that idea, it comes with the protective side. And what I'm really understanding from what you're describing here is in order to build back our oxytocin, in order to take a break and not feel guilty about it, we have to develop that fight that defensiveness, that um, that internal power to say, no, I'm going to fight against this guilt feeling. I'm going to fight against those things that would press me down and push me down and say, no, you need to only sleep four hours and get back up at 4 a.m. and start work again because that's not good. So there has to almost be this like aggressive, assertive strength to it, which is a very like motherly type of thing, standing up for her cubs, you know, standing up Mm -hmm. for her children and saying, no, I need to take this rest. I need to take this time to congratulate myself because that's where that oxytocin is built. So it comes with that really powerful, powerful emotional component too. That's just, I, as you're talking about this, it's just making my brain light up of, wow, even the chemical stuff connects with the dream symbol stuff because a lot of people miss that. And it sounds like a lot of people miss that break time, that oxytocin when they, when they get some time off. hundred percent. I think it's, yeah, super insightful, that connection that is there. And I didn't actually know that the, the bear or the wolf are a maternal figure in our dreams. I'm someone that dreams like a lot. I have very visual experience of dreams. I wake up every day thinking about them and really That's thinking cool. about the strength of that mama bear and almost like drawing upon it in these moments and thinking of that as like a part of you and how can I draw upon that strength that mama bear to overcome the way in which I'm communicating with myself about this rest to like go with the same example yeah yeah well you know maybe that jumps back into the political topic but oftentimes we think of the feminine the maternal as very submissive very weak you know very to the side get out of the way while you know we do our productive you know assertive type things but it's not like that's Mm -hmm. not the full picture of kind of that feminine oxytocin energy 
you got to see a female polar bear defend her family and then <laughs> you, you, you won't think that the feminine energy is too submissive for sure. <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, you know, the, the pioneers, I, I'm in America and the pioneers in America, they always tell the stories in, uh, in grade school about history. They weren't afraid of the papa bears. They were afraid of the mama grizzly bears. That's what they were afraid of when exploring the wilderness. There you go. <laughs> There you go. <laughs> it's true. So you remember uh, a lot of your dreams, though. You know, that's pretty unique. Most people forget many of their dreams. And that's kind of, you know, a little bit of the brain structure is built to uh, forget your dreams. So remembering them is pretty, pretty unique. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I have such a unusual relationship with my kind of dream world because they're not just memorable, they are so actively relevant to my life, the, the people that are in them, and they're just like mm. such a visual ex dictation of what's going on in my life. And the biggest example I can give you, and this is like, uh, could be yeah, considered embarrassing or something like that, but I don't really mind that kind of thing. It's good to be open. I, uh, appreciate it, appreciate finished, it. With, uh, I finished with my ex-girlfriend like uh, last February. Um, so it's been mm. a long time. I've processed a lot of it now. And during the experience of that, the months that followed as I was processing it, even though it was a decision I was happy that I'd made, it's super hard letting go of someone that you're connected to. And oh, yeah. the relevance of her just being in my dreams all the time was just unbelievable. Every night, just dreaming, different conversations, different outcomes of her doing different things and all of these different areas. And all I could perceive it as in my kind of psychological, analytical brain, like what what is my brain doing here? it felt like my brain was just trying to help me process at a more efficient speed, things that maybe I didn't want to actually actively think about in my conscious mind. So like it even did the example of when you let go of a partner, it's pretty tough to imagine them with a new partner. That's not a particularly enjoyable experience. No, it certainly is not. Way. <laughs> so my brain even put me through the unbelievable joy of effectively watching that experience, not the full experience, some kissing, watching that experience in my dream. And whilst it's like annoying, it's hard to do, I kind of think it's kind of moving me forward because if I had seen that in real life, it would move me forward a lot quicker. So I almost yeah. think, and I'd be curious to get your guidance, like is there a component of our dreams that brings the subconscious to the conscious to enable us to process some of these thoughts? Yeah, so you got to think about like the structure of the brain, you know, there's the prefrontal cortex, which is up in the front, and then there's all the rest, which, you know, you've got your amygdala and your hippocampus, amygdala is the emotional center, hippocampus is your memories, and then you've got, you know, your basic functions in your brain stem, which control, you know, your digestion, which we know is where a lot of serotonin is made is in your digestion and mm -hmm. your gut and all that. And so um, all these automatic processes are happening in the back of your brain. So when you go to sleep, there is reduced activity in your frontal cortex. Now, this part of the brain yeah. is what makes all those decisions. It's what really is choosing, okay, we're going to focus on this. We're going to focus on this. And that's why it gets tired at the end of the day because it's so busy guiding your efforts, guiding your behavior toward we're going to focus on this thing. We're going to focus on this thing. When you go to sleep, there's reduced activity there. And whatever emotions were rumbling around in the back part of your brain now have free reign. They're not held okay. back by your conscious decision-making and effort and concentration. They just get to do whatever it is, which is, which is really beautiful. And I absolutely agree with you. The reason I got into dreams um, is through the recognition of working with trauma that dreams were helping people and trying to help people work through and process their trauma.
So when we go to sleep, all those emotions can kind of come out and process. I um I use kind of the example that it's similar to like um like a computer, right? A computer can process very fast, and it's really good at that. But what a computer can't do is give that information meaning. It can hold information, it can store information, but it can't give it meaning. Human beings dream because when we turn off all of our senses and we turn inside, we take all that information we absorb from the day and we give it meaning. Because otherwise, we don't know what to do with it. It's interesting. And now I've just got dreams pouring through my head and I'm thinking, <laughs> what is the meaning? <laughs> I, it's true. It's true because that's, that's literally that question. What is the meaning is what your brain's trying to figure out while you sleep. And that's why sleep is so crucially important because, mm-hmm. you know, we see just these dramatic shifts in even, even athletic performance, not to mention mental and analytical performance. If somebody doesn't get enough sleep. Because their mm-hmm. brain hasn't been able to make sense of and organize whatever information was learned from the day. So here you are, go through a breakup, right? You go to sleep and your brain's like, oh, we went through a breakup. What does that mean for us? Well, mm-hmm. we're single now. It means that we're probably going to go look for a new partner to be with, someone to share our lives with. It also means that they're going to have a new partner. And I've got a process mm-hmm imagining seeing them with somebody else and even in that dream that you just described there's the flip side of it you're imagining seeing that partner with somebody else but there's also the suggestion of you're trying to make sense of you being with someone else at the same time too and prepare for that next step in your own life so it's just absolutely fascinating i can go on for a long time but uh yeah what other dreams are popping into your head interesting stuff i mean yeah, what kind of stuff does come up? I think a lot of it, if I'm honest, relationship-based stuff probably has been the theme of the last like six months. And I've now had a number of, of new partners and new court people I've like interacted with and dated and stuff like that, which has been super fun. And it's almost like my dreams feel like they're on this very quick, they just like work efficiently almost. So it's like even if I was spending some time with a new person on the weekend. Like last night, my dream was interconnected with spending that with time with that person. So it's just like almost visually shows me what things can look like and what like hanging out with them could look like and stuff like that. So it's, it is important. I don't know if it's unusual. It's more oriented towards the relationship component of my life. But I guess that's just because over the last six months, I've just been in this new transition period and connecting back into my idea of one day building a cool family, I think it's just uh, an important part of what I think about. Yeah, you mentioned that that's so important for you, so it would make sense. And I'll say, you know, your experience is not different from what we've observed through DreamApp. You know, with DreamApp, we, we've collected at this point over two and a half million dreams from users. So the largest nice. database of dreams in the world, which gives us the opportunity to, cool. to really analyze that data in ways that we've, we've never been able to analyze dream data in the way that we are now. And so when we look at the symbols and we look at the topics that people are um, dreaming about, just overwhelmingly, it's relationships. Uh, Out of the top 10 symbols, you could argue that all the top 10 are relational, but definitely the top seven or eight. You know, the last two are usually about like being chased or death or something negative. But really, the first Mm -hmm. ones are about sex, relationships, your crush, your ex, you know. 
those relational symbols are, are the again. number one symbols that show up in dreams. And so it just it just demonstrates like this conversation about oxytocin, this conversation about relationships and feeling like a worthy member of society. That's such an ingrained and important part of what it means to be human. And we see that just every direction we look, whether it's chemical or dream, you know? Very cool. Very cool. It's very interesting that that is what the brain would choose to spend so much time finding meaning and processing because I think a lot about these chemicals and which one is our society prioritizing more and mm. we are just in the land of dopamine in our society like all we're thinking about is pursuit 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 career money da, 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 just like constant how do we advance and then we also are thinking on the other side of dopamine how do we make this as efficient to experience as possible and let's invent drugs alcohol booze porn nicotine everything that just makes dopamine fast but we live in dopamine land effectively but when i'm trying to kind of compare which one would be a better one for us to prioritize optimizing oxytocin and just being very intimately connected to your group and fundamentally a really important part of oxytocin is making a contribution to your group and having strong relationships and supporting those that are within the group i really think like that is such a fundamental antidote to this mental health problem that we're experiencing within mm. our society so hearing that the dream's biggest thing that it thinks about is relational connection it's like wow that makes sense that humans need to be more in pursuit of this tribal group connection than maybe we currently are especially we see what covid did to us just like completely disconnected us all yeah, yeah. it's cool it's putting some uh, things together in my head well you're making you're making me trip off a little bit now thinking about um i don't <laughs> i don't know right but i i have this hunch as we're having this conversation i wonder what the change in dream topics has been from like a thousand years ago, right? A thousand years ago wow, to now, yeah. I wonder what the change in dream topics has been. I would imagine if it's more hunter-gatherer, if it's more related to survival, I would imagine that dreams would have been much more related to like, I'm, I'm fighting grizzly bears in my mind. I'm, you know, I'm trying to take down a woolly mammoth, right? Because that's the things that I really am struggling with and trying to overcome in my waking life. But as you just mm -hmm. said, with this problem that we have with dopamine and oxytocin in our culture, it makes sense that perhaps the dream landscape has shifted to be more yeah. relational oriented because that's something, even as, even as we're more connected in our culture now, we really struggle with that deep and meaningful connection that creates that oxytocin. I wonder if that triggers our relational dreams. I think that's pretty accurate, to be honest, because dopamine would have been a, a bigger problem back in the day like acquiring dopamine as i said only, only really acquired through activities that actively create survival so you'd constantly have been thinking about where is the food all of this different stuff how are we going to yeah. survive the cold and relationally we were so hyper connected because like we had no choice that like, you you had to be connected to your group because if you strayed away you're just gone immediately so you're just that's not it done outside of the group so it's almost like it, yeah, it's gone through a bit of a swing. We've now gone, that might be more oxytocin land and limited dopamine. And now it's like we're in dopamine land, limited oxytocin. Yeah. Are, are these two in this, I, I don't know, uh, are oxytocin and dopamine antagonistic in the brain? Um, like if you have more dopamine, do you struggle with oxytocin? If you have more oxytocin, do you struggle with dopamine? Because they almost seem 
like opposite ends of the spectrum, like yin and yang in some ways, right? Yeah, that is interesting. I think there are different behaviors because as, as we've worked through this model of developing dose and doing a lot of the science behind it, there is, right. of course, behaviors that correspond to multiple chemicals. It's not as divisive as just like these behaviors are only dopamine, these are only oxytocin. Like, for example, physical connection, having sex with someone, that's going to create a lot of oxytocin from all that love. But then also mm. having sex with someone is super connected to human survival and reproduction and all that kind of stuff. So it's also going to, you're going to experience dopamine off sex as well. So there are mm -hmm. behaviors that kind of correspond between the two and cause them both to rise. But I think dopamine can be like slightly more oriented to a self-focused act of like, how do I make my life better with all of these different things? And oxytocin yeah. is much more of a, how do I make the collective experience better? So in that sense, they do effectively work antagonistically. Mm. You know, as you're describing that, I wonder if they're a bit antagonistic uh, because I wonder if they're sequential where dopamine motivates us and propels us to go achieve the thing. And then once the achievement is there, once that, once that accomplishment is completed, we're supposed to then experience the oxytocin boost that connects us with our community that says, good job, way to go. I belong. I'm a part of this. I'm contributing something powerful and meaningful to this peer group that I'm in. Because we know that dopamine spikes not when you achieve the thing, but just before you achieve the thing. Mm -hmm. So if I'm, you know, if I'm, I'm thinking about sex, right? Like if we're, I'm thinking about sex, the dopamine, if I'm understanding, doesn't actually spike, you know, during the sex. It spikes just before like, okay, are we actually going to? go into the bedroom like mm -hmm. are we actually going to do this and then it drops off and i feel oxytocin so it's almost like oxytocin yeah. comes in at the peak when dopamine starts to peel off I am i off base with that because this is definitely your field not mine no i love it i think that's a very good and a accurate way to describe it and even going back to the beginning the function of dopamine is to just create the desire to pursue things that are important to us effectively and for sure like if you dopamine yeah they, they interconnect so much because the act of pursuing your life whether it's like right. pursuing the, the health in your life your career all of these different things they actually then enable oxytocin to be created in your life because if you become someone that is making a contribution and becoming like a decent human being in our world the capacity to attract people and attract a mate for example like if you look at the hunter-gatherers, I'm sure there were men that were like extremely efficient hunter-gatherers, and I'm sure they had a good time with the girls being the efficient hunter-gatherers because they Probably. were effectively providing the greatest contribution. So I think, yeah, definitely dopamine will work in, in unique moments as a precursor to the opportunity to then experience an oxytocin connection. Interesting. Wow. So then it just it shows how important allowing yourself to receive that oxytocin allowing yourself to receive that maternal care, like, hey, you did a good job, proud of you, rest mm -hmm. in your accomplishments, feel good about that. If you don't Definitely. do that, and this, it'll this, sabotage your dopamine. And this comes so much back down to the rest because we're constantly just in the pursuit of more, in the pursuit of more. And that is what dopamine is doing in our brain. Like it does, it yeah. wants us to do that because as hunter-gatherers, we could never get complacent. You always have to be in the pursuit of more. 
but you mm-hmm. also need to have the capacity to to celebrate the steps that you're taking and this is why if you do do like dopamine in the day it's just like work 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 achieve 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 which is part of being a human you don't want to get too far, far down that road but it is part of being a human just making sure you're progressing and that's when like for example lying in bed and creating a nice calming experience as you're going to sleep rather than lying in bed and anxiously thinking shit i've got so much more to achieve look at all these things i didn't do today which is what a lot of people lying in bed thinking rather at the end of the day it should be much more of an oxytocin experience of like let's celebrate what i have done today instead of thinking what i didn't wow i need to make some changes to my life tj <laughs> <laughs> Little steps at a time, though. Little steps I'm at a time. I'm over here like, oh, my gosh, this is a therapy session for me. <laughs> this is post-therapy. This is like a new version. It's like just chemical-based. <laughs> for real. For real. Oh, my God. Yeah, I got some I got some things to work on in my personal life. <laughs> These are wow. small acts, though. And it's obviously we don't just have to radically change our life. That's the whole point of this dose thing. It's just little things, understand where we're falling short and how can we make small adjustable changes over time and then the accumulation of them all often will lead to a much better headspace. Yeah, see, I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of funny in that way. Like, um, I need to understand why and the greater picture behind it in order to feel motivated. So sometimes, you know, I'll see these, you know, TikTok and Instagram influencers on the mental health space and they'll be like, get more sunlight, drink more water. And I'm like, yes, I know that. But just telling me to do those things is not very motivating. I don't understand the greater picture behind it. And so through this conversation with you today, TJ, it's like, okay, I understand the greater relationship between each of these four very important chemicals in our brain. And yes, water is important, but here's why it's important, because it affects these five next steps down the road if you don't make sure to take care of yourself in that way. So that just helps give me some greater context that I think is really motivating. Yeah, and I think it's so important to understand these fundamentals to motivate yourself to do these behaviors, because we as a human now, as humans now, just live in an entirely different way to our biological design. Like this is a completely different experience. We're all sitting in houses on our own, on computers, and we used to all run around in forests together. So we've just completely polar opposited the way in which we live as humans. And finding the motivation to go out in sunlight or eat healthily or drink water or prioritize your sleep, these things now require additional extra effort. They're not just happening for us. Whereas back in the day, it just happened. We just got a lot of sunlight. We got, and there yeah. was only healthy food because we could just eat what the forest gave us. And these things do require therefore like additional insights in your, in your head as to the why behind doing it. Like something like porn, for example, I think porn is such an interesting topic because it is not surprising that we as humans want to watch porn. Like fundamentally, we want to have sex. As a human, you can watch sexy people having sex. It makes you feel awesome whilst you're watching it. So it's something that we're going to do. But the challenge that porn creates for our brain, and when we go back to that dopamine spiking, it's huge dopamine spiking because it's tapping into that real core survival experience of sex. So dopamine mm-hmm. surges and it crashes, and then we have the challenges of less production of dopamine and so on. And porn, for example, like I have had my personal battle with all dopamine behaviors. Like I'm definitely not like just like a naturally healthy person. I've got super into the world of alcohol, super into the world of drugs. I've watched plenty of porn in my life. Like I've, I love social media. I love TikTok. Porn is one that really is hard to resist of all of them. Porn is really hard. And 
I've had to fundamentally just like train my brain to understand specifically the negative outcomes it will create in my life. So that in the mm. moment of desiring porn, I can list these things and think, how will it affect my confidence with girls, my performance with girls, my drive for my career, all of these things that I really want to be good at. And then I can resist it. And I think maybe I could just not watch porn. I can still do the act of that that you're wanting to do. You just have to watch porn at the same time. And yeah. understanding like coming back to these deep whys as to not doing or doing these behaviors, that's what creates the desire. You know, it's interesting that you say that too, because it almost sounds like, if I'm understanding correctly, it almost sounds like that desire to look at porn is kind of a misunderstood uh, pull or push toward that topic. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I may be sitting here feeling kind of shitty about myself and I have the thought, I want to go watch porn. Sure. Yes, you're having that thought you want to watch porn. But is that thought, is that feeling actually telling you you should go watch pornography? Or is it a misunderstood emotion saying, hey, right now you have a deficit in dopamine or oxytocin or what have you, where we're misinterpreting it? Because the same thing happens with, uh, you know, oh, goodness, like coffee, right? People who are mm -hmm. very addicted to caffeine or to cigarettes, right? They'll have the feeling, I want a cigarette. But if they actually take a moment and look at their emotions, what they're feeling in that moment, they may actually just be feeling like unproductive or they may be feeling mm -hmm. uncared for or unconnected. And so it's not the mm -hmm. cigarette they want, it's the connection that they want. And the same thing happens in dreams. So people are like, you know, why did I, very common one, uh, why did I dream about like my child dying? Why did I dream about mm -hmm. uh, being chased? By something why did I dream about you know murder or a car crash I don't want these things and the problem over over and over again and this is why we created dream app is those things can't be taken literally it's not actually the car crash or being chased or your child dying or murder they need to be interpreted and oftentimes when we're being chased by something it's not literally fear and anxiety it's there's something in our life that you're avoiding you know, it's chasing mm -hmm. you and your mind is saying, hey, there's something in your life that you need to be facing and turning to address, but instead you're running away from. Or they'll dream about like, why was I, why was I dreaming about having sex with my ex again? They were toxic. I don't want them back in my life. Why do I keep dreaming about them? You don't literally want your ex back. You want a part of yourself back that you lost in that relationship. Maybe back then you wow. used to be more happy or feel connected and you're missing that right now. So what does your brain say? It says, well, last time I felt connected and oxytocin, I was having sex with my ex. So it gives you that symbol again. And people misunderstand it all the time because they take their dreams so literally. And I think you're saying the same thing. They take that desire for porn. They take that desire for a cigarette or for a drink. They take it literally instead of stopping to think, this is a message from my mind telling me that one of these four key chemicals is out of balance and I need to go pursue the correct balance of that chemical right now. Yeah, that is just facts, what you said there. And so interesting about the uh, the dreams of the exes. That provides lots of clarity for me as the <laughs> last summer dream experience. There you go. <laughs> which is uh, which is cool. Thanks for putting that, that connection in my brain. That's a relieving experience for sure. And... Uh, I do think this, like our, our systems are unbelievably sophisticated guidance machines. Like they are constantly Oof. trying to chat to us and guide us. And 
we now in our world just like constantly opt for the distraction mode of like any guidance that we don't like the feeling of it's like well let's go on tiktok because then i don't have to listen to this guidance and i can just uh distract my brain and with the porn example you're not desiring porn you're desiring to have sex you want to connect with a, a human and have sex because that's what humans do and porn is just the quick easy way in which you can slightly simulate that experience but anything that falls short of the real version often creates more difficulty in our head than it creates any kind of value and it is like these low dopamine states wanting a cigarette whatever it may be are so common because let's say every weekend society puts itself into a low dopamine state by pumping the booze and right. like that like as a society we all drop our dopamine down and in that low dopamine state it's not just the alcohol that then creates all the shit feelings that we have on saturday sunday and monday it's actually the fact that when we're feeling shit, we wake up, the dopamine's super low. We then immediately, our brain thinks, right, how the hell do I get my dopamine back up? And the great thing to do would be get out, get some sunlight, get some cold water on your body, get some kind of exercise. These things would be good. But instead, we're like, what could be the quickest way to recover my dopamine? Let's watch some porn today. Let's make sure I order a McDonald's. Let's make sure I just like, eat some junk. Let's scroll TikTok for an extra four hours today. And all we do is in this state where the brain was desperately desiring you to recover your dopamine, you just use every last inch that it's got. And then you find yourself on like a Sunday thinking, fuck, life is shit and all this sort of stuff. But it's just because you've just absolutely obliterated that system. So beginning to actually, as you say, the guidance is key because it's like, let's listen to it. What does it actually want me to do? It probably, for example, in the daytime, wants you to accomplish something with your work rather than go sit on your bed and watch porn. Like it, that's what it's seeking for. But yep. it's instead, it's like, let's not go for the quick one. So it's interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, I'm just really fascinated by this idea of uh, learning how to listen to the messages and interpret accurately what our mind, our mm -hmm. emotions, and our body are trying to tell us. Because I feel like and when I work with my clients, you know, um, once they understand and learn how to interpret and listen to what the body is actually saying, they achieve and experience so much more success and happiness than they did before. It's the, mm -hmm. it's the misinterpretation and taking things too literally that really causes people struggle to struggle in my experience. So... That's wonderfully helpful. Yeah, it's, re it's really important just to start paying closer attention and stop seeking for distraction all the time because it is hard to learn to interpret your emotions and all this sort of stuff. And for me, this happens takes work. after university. It takes work. Like it is, it's a difficult experience, but ultimately leads to a much better life. So it's like, are you willing to, to kind of take the, the risk of listening to some of these things? And mm. I had this experience when I came back to at university going super hard on the party lifestyle and then I had that summer where actually no sorry that was in an interview this morning let me just give that context I was getting duped in my brain then that I'd already talked about that I had this experience <laughs> after uni of like how do I kind of redirect myself a bit I was going pretty hard at uni how do I build a cool career and stuff mm. and I was super addicted to my phone at this point and never spent enough time like outdoors, in nature, all that sort of stuff. And I knew from everything I'd studied at uni that we need sunlight and nature. It's just like so crucial and hardly surprising. We spent 400,000 years out there. Now we get none. So go figure. We, I was like, I've got to get out there and I've got to not have my phone with me. So I would go on these like 60 minute walks, no phone 
in my head and like I always used to have podcasts, always used to have music playing and it'd be like, shit, there's a lot of noise in here effectively for me to mm. deal with. And I'd go out on these walks, I'd feel bored, I'd think about things I didn't want to think about, different decisions I've made or where I wasn't making progress in my life or whatever it may be. And it like wasn't that fun of an experience. But every day I got back from the walk and I thought, yeah, that was definitely time well spent. Like I, I had no regrets for doing the walk and I thought I just got to go again tomorrow and have these walks. And literally throughout this two month period of just daily walks in the quiet, no phone, I fully redirected my life basically because I just started listening to that guidance mechanism that was trying to get me to be a human that was functioning and contributing to society. So I just really recommend like taking the plunge and thinking, how do I spend a bit more time listening to these thoughts in my head and how do I align with them? And you may find things start to transfer a bit. Wow. Yeah, I could probably use a little bit more walks in my my life. So you're, <laughs> you're telling me things <laughs> I need to be like, hearing. Even, even if it's like five minutes without your phone, it's just like a gradual build up. Yeah, and that's really encouraging too, you know, because I think about like, you know, you see all these things and these recommendations online about like, you know, an hour here, an hour in the gym, an hour in sunlight, you know, go to bed at 10 p.m. And it's like, ugh, that's a lot. And so I just end up dropping all of it because they're asking too mm -hmm. much. But I appreciate that encouragement of, hey, if you walk outside for 30 seconds and come back in, that's better than the zero that you had when you started. Start there, five <laughs> minutes, two minutes, it's fine. Well, what is stopping you right now from going to the fridge and taking an extra sip of water that you didn't take or wouldn't have taken otherwise? It doesn't have to be a full gallon or a half gallon or whatever. Just go take yeah, an extra glass. Jog life. <laughs> yeah, let's start. Let's start you there see, because we have a long way to go. A hundred percent. And the part of the reason I was doing the quiet walks was because I really wanted to get into the world of meditation and I don't know if you've interacted with the world of meditation, but it's not that easy to sit in the quiet and think. It's no. uh, a, a tough experience. And I'd sit there. Stilling my mind was the last thing on my agenda of what I was going to achieve. But it was just like, how can I cope with this experience of sitting in the quiet effectively? Yeah. And even back then, all I did was make this commitment to myself that the breathing stuff is, is really particularly good. Aside from meditation, learning how to breathe in a calm way is really important. And Andrew Huberman, the like god of neuroscience in our world now, talks a lot about these breathing practices. So I just told myself that before work every day, I had to sit at my desk, get on my desk. Before I could open the computer, I just had to do 60 seconds on a timer of breathing with my eyes shut, which was like such an achievable thing to do. Put a timer on 60 seconds, yeah. I'll breathe in and out. I don't care what I think about, it's not meditation. And like, it was such an achievable thing to do that I just got into it. And then gradually I thought, I actually feel a little bit calmer and a little bit more clarity when I do this breathing thing. So I went up like to two minutes and went up to three minutes. And it was such a little step-by-step -step process. And I've never gone that far beyond it. Now I do like five minutes of breathing. It's not like I'm now a monk sitting in the choir, but I just have this like <laughs> little practice gradually integrated into my life. And I think you can do that with all this stuff, healthier eating, more time in sunlight, better sleep. It's just like little steps in the right direction. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, TJ, listen, this has been a very enlightening conversation. I greatly appreciate it. Um, I know we didn't talk perhaps too much about dreams uh, because I know a bunch of the followers of the podcast. We talk about dreams every week. And so what I really wanted to highlight today, which I just really appreciate you doing for us, is highlighting the differences and the effects that each of these four chemicals have on the brain. Because 
you're going to see those differences in your dreams. Those who have difficulty with dopamine or especially difficulty with oxytocin, you're going to see more stress chemicals. You're going to see more dreams about being chased or being afraid. Um, and so again, you're going to feel off, feel shitty in your day. If your chemicals are imbalanced, you're also going to experience dream symbols and types of dreams that communicate that same message. If your if your serotonin, dopamine, oxytocin, endorphins are messed up and not aligned the way that they should be, that's going to be reflected in your dreams as well. And we know that you know we see the difference that alcohol has on the brain and dreams. We see the difference, and we've talked about it. The way that nicotine affects your dreams in the brain, the way that marijuana affects your dreams in the brain. So, learning and recognizing the importance of these chemicals, and taking some concerted and uh, purposeful steps to increase and to balance those out. Absolutely crucial. And I appreciate that encouragement today, TJ. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. I've loved it, man. Unbelievable conversation. Thanks for your insights and all your teachings as well, mate. It's been very cool. Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listen, we'll, we'll end this here, but, uh, I'll stay, I'll stay online with you a couple more minutes in case we want to talk about some dream stuff, uh, for a sec, but for all of you listening, <laughs> thank you so much. Uh, we'll be live again real soon. Take care. I'll talk to you then. Thank you.